provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real. It's just your point of view. How does it feel for you? Einstein said he could never understand it all. Planets are spinning through space. Smile upon your face. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of Sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love ride. Welcome to turning hard times into good times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is also in partnership with Roger Wiegand, who writes another newsletter called Trader Tracks, and it's orientated towards trading, commodities, and futures. And Chen Lin, he's the author of What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? We have special introductory offers uh, to all three newsletters. You can call my assistant, Claudio Bassi, at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426, to order our special trial subscriptions, or you can do it directly on our website at miningstocks.com. Also, we have a Jay's Watch List, which you can go to. That's a free site that has uh, the names of companies that I'm following, uh, that I'm looking at, actually, as possible uh, recommendations for my own newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Uh, today, I will be talking with Chris Krupe. He is the president of Paramount Ventures. That's a company on my watch list uh, that has been selected uh, for my newsletter, for my subscribers, and Chris will uh, tell you about his property in Mexico, um, and that will come in the second hour of this program. Again, I want to thank each of you for listening to this show. Uh, Thanks to each of you for listening. Uh, You have really made this a, a show of growing popularity. We are now the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel, and um, and that's uh, saying something because there's some 32 other uh, other shows on that channel. So we're very proud of that, and but we thank you for listening and making that a reality. I also want to thank our our corporate sponsors who make this a financial reality. They are for the first hour today: Barkerville Gold, American Bonanza, Merrick's Gold Inc., Palangel Exploration, Tara Minerals, PMI Resources, Crocodile Gold, and Bayfield Ventures. 
given my view that Austrian economics provides a predictive tool for uh, d- determining what the future holds, at least to a certain extent in general, uh, for the economy, uh, I have had the view for many years that the U.S. economy is heading down, down and heading down very, very hard. While pundits will say that our problems prove that capitalism doesn't work, what I suggest is that we haven't really tried capitalism for quite some time in the United States, and especially since 1913 when the Federal Reserve was created, we have been moving more and more towards a collectivist society, a, a market system, a system is in essence that is anti-market. And so with each installation of more um, collectivism, we move further away from markets and we have bigger and bigger problems. So in the way I see it, we are moving in one direction that is not uh, conducive to better times, but in fact to times in which Americans are going to have more and more difficulties making ends meet. Uh, the, uh, the country is moving in the direction of collectivism, and that is not a way to build wealth. You need to save and invest and work hard. That's how wealth is created. That's how America became wealthy to start with, and we've moved away from that to such a great extent. So in my way of thinking, what is happening is not an accident. Uh, it, it has been predictive. Uh, that's why in my newsletter we've been able to uh, to do quite well since 2000 because we could see what was coming. And actually, it's not because of any brilliance on my part. It's really just because of a framework called Austrian economics. The Austrian economists could see it coming uh, a long time in advance. And there were many uh, folks that are in the Austrian camp, and I think of my good friend David Tice, who's been on this show in the past, uh, as a good example of that. But another one that uh, has certainly seen it coming for some time is Ian Gordon, and he's going to be my special uh, guest this week. Ian will be coming with me at a half past, uh, uh, half past the hour. He'll be here to talk about the Kondratiev cycle and where he thinks we're heading in terms of the inflation-deflation argument. Ian is decidedly a deflationist. We're going to find out why he thinks it's inevitable, and no matter how much money is printed, they cannot def- uh, inflate away the problems and the huge indebtedness that we have now. Uh, at approximately, so Ian will be on with me then, and uh, also in the first uh, half hour and a few minutes, we're going to have with me William Shera. He's the president of Goldrich Resources. Goldrich is a sponsor of this show, as I just noted a few minutes ago, and William is going to talk to us a little bit about his uh, project in. Um, in Alaska, uh, the company is moving towards some uh, gold production from a placer property in Alaska, but the most exciting part of this company's story is its exploration potential uh, in Alaska. It's not an easy place to work, so a lot of uh, there, haven't, there hasn't been the kind of attention in Alaska as you might find in other places, but sometimes that means there's more opportunity as well. Um, we are uh, going to actually, before we get to that point, uh, before we get to Mr. Shara, we're going to talk with my good friend Chen Lin, who's with me now. Chen? Yes, hi, Jay. Welcome. I'm glad to have you on my show finally. We've been so busy and we haven't, uh, we haven't had a chance to talk much recently, but it's really good to have you. Uh, you were talking to me a little earlier today about some exciting things going on in China. The Chinese people are rapidly buying gold, it seems. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, what I heard was uh, there's uh, Chinese people are really concerned about the economy and concerned about the paper currency. Uh, remember, the Weimar uh, Republic-like uh, style, uh, style uh, reinflation happened mm-hmm. in China in the 1940s. Mm-hmm. So actually, so uh, for the older generation, it's uh, still vivid in their mind. So what's going on right now in China is um, 
there's a strong inflation uh, pressure in China. All the food, all these, uh, everything people use start to rise uh, pretty rapidly, partly due to there's a limited resource, and then more and more people start consuming, start enjoying better life. So the price has been rising sharply, and then people feel the, the government just printing money, just pour money into all these uh, state-owned enterprises, and uh, their money has been diluted. So there's uh, people getting really concerned. And there's a good old saying in Chinese, it's like, if in bad time you buy gold, okay, this has been true for almost thousands of years. So mm-hmm. if people think the bad times are coming, so they're just buying gold. I send you the video, and you possibly on your news site, the people just waiting in line. Yeah. Just like a gold shop, they're reporting tens of thousands uh, you know, patri- you know, people buying gold per-, per day, you know, like it's just like incredible. Mm-hmm. Well, Chen, what percentage of the Chinese population do you think are able or wealthy enough to buy gold? It must be a small percentage of them yet, though, huh? It's it's relatively small percent, but uh, you remember, Chinese is a high saving uh, mm-hmm. uh, country. So, in general, even you're talking about those poor people, they always have some saving mm-hmm. because it's just people don't feel. Um, comfortable if you don't have any saving. That's part of it due to China. You know, for thousands of years' history, they always like farming, always happen. So those people don't save, just die, because they have nothing when, when time, you know, when there's no food. You know, some people mm-hmm. who have some gold or silver can still buy some food to survive, mm-hmm. okay, and uh, those tough times. So, so there's a culture of saving. So even you're talking about those poor people in the countryside, they probably have some money in the bank. I don't know how much they're buying gold, but there's mm-hmm. just a lot of people buying gold. Mm-hmm. So they're able to buy small quantities of gold. Perhaps even people of lesser means are able to, and I would think that if they don't have the confidence in paper, then they're opting to buy gold, even if it's a small amount. But if you say the 1940s, are you saying that, that China had an inflation, like a hyperinflation, like the Weimar Republic? Yeah, it's uh, similar to Weimar Republic, uh, probably in um, a bigger degree. For example, like um, I remember, like in er, even in the early 1950s, before the communists start to changing uh, in the currency, you, everybody was a millionaire. You, you spend a million dollar to buy something, something like that. It's, it's very, very um, high inflation uh, mm-hmm. in the 1940s. It was well, you're having are you having some food inflation there now? Significant rises in food costs, right? Exactly, the food costs and people feel the inflation, feel something bad is going to happen. So they, there's a, you know, and plus people saving money into euro, they thought they were pretty smart last year. Until now, everything started to collapse. So people got scared, mm-hmm. you know, and every government is printing like there's no tomorrow. So people got major concerns on there. So they start buying gold. So I think, you know, gold probably, you know, is poised for upside breakout. You see, the, 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 the market got hammered, dollar super strong, but gold is stronger than, than, than a dollar. So it's just tell you who is a super currency in the world. Very interesting. Uh, Chen, um, the, the Chinese are trying to hold down their economy now, are they not? They're, they're really worried about this inflation issue. So do you think they're going to be able to fine-tune this and get this to land like to have a nice slow um, a reduction in the in the growth of China, so that they don't either have an overkill on the downside, or you know, or it runs away and gets out of hand on the upside, uh, inflation-wise. Do you think they'll be able to fine tune it and have a soft landing in China? It's hard to say. Uh, they did it. Uh, I think they have some success. They have some failure. You know, you can have cases. Uh, you know, in the past twenty, thirty years. 
it always goes through this cycle, and then they try to cool down. Sometimes they was able to do it successfully. Sometimes they wasn't. So they mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, riot well, and all these. All, it, all it just stuff. it just seems to me that the world is depending to such a great extent on China these days to keep the to keep growth uh, occurring that I'm, I'm just wondering what might happen if China, you know, if there was some overkill on the slowdown efforts. But I'd like to just, we only have a couple of minutes left here, Chen, in this, cor- in this, uh, in this segment, but I want to ask you, uh, you mentioned also something very interesting about the paper pulp stories. I know this is, paper pulp is an industry that you've been on to earlier than anybody else I know, and there's some really startling news that came out of China that's boosted the paper pulp markets uh, today, from what I understand. Would you care to pass that on to our listeners? Yes. Uh, China just announced uh, over on Friday, last Friday, they're going to shut down 4 million tons per, uh, per year per, uh, paper pulp and paper capacity. Mm. Uh, those generally are the smaller producers that are highly pollutive. And I, 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 I sort of had some doubt. I talked to you know, a company like Timbag, like other, they all had some doubt. Did they is this for real? Because, you know, 4 million tons per year. You're talking about the Chile earthquake is 1 million tons. It's one ton. Oh. You know, the, the power price went through the roof. And then you're talking mm-hmm. about 4 million tons per year per capacity cut. Are they really going to do it? And I talked to my, you know, friends in China. I talked to people. seems like the China signed a treaty called Stockholm um, Convention. Okay, they have to do it by next July. So basically, right now they have a year to implement that. And it seems like China, this is a firm commitment, and then China wants to do it because China also really concerned about the environmental. They're sick and tired about all these pollution, so mm-hmm. on and so forth. So they, what the plan to want to implement this year? Mm-hmm. I, I, I doubt they can implement this year because the power price is so high, they will shut down all these uh, uh, you know, the, the, the straw pop, you know, low-end pop, and then people, you know, a lot of people making money, tax revenue, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, so they may shut down some this year, and then they still have six months next year to shut down. So bottom I line, see. looks like they really, they're seriously looking to shut down 4 million tons per year wow. of pop and paper capacity in China. So, so I guess the long and short of it is you're very, very bullish still on, on pulp, on, on yes. the industry, if not the stocks. I mean, if the equity market in general gets hammered, then maybe the shares don't do as well as otherwise. But from a basic fundamental profit-wise position, you, you're very bullish on this sector then, I guess, still. Exactly. And then Mercer International today got an upgrade from Raymond James. You know, it's up about oh. 7% right now. Even in How the much? Market. Uh, 7%. It was up as, as much as 10% earlier. Wow. So, well, congratulations, so, Chen. I, that's all the time we've got. Uh, I want uh, people to remember they can uh, take a trial subscription to Chen and learn on a daily basis because he sends something out almost every day on on his uh, excellent advice and uh, in terms of the companies that he's in favor of and the ones he's buying and selling. What is Chen buying? What is Chen selling? Call my assistant, Claudio Bossi, at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426 to learn more about Chen's work, and uh, also you can go to miningstocks.com also to follow some of what Chen is doing. Chen, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. We'll wait until next week and see what ideas you have next week. Thanks for coming on with us. Folks, that's all the time uh, for this segment. We're going to be back, though, however, uh, with William Shara. He's the president and CEO of Goldrich Mining Company. It's a very exciting company in Alaska. In fact, Chen, if you have time, we'd like you to hang around and perhaps listen in, because I know this is one that you have talked about in the past. So if you want to hang around and and, uh, stay online with us, and perhaps you'll have a question for Bill as well. Okay, folks, we're going to be right back with uh, William Shara. Don't go away.
it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. American Bonanza Gold's project, located in Arizona, is scheduled for production in 2010. American Bonanza Gold announced the positive results of its recent feasibility study at its 100% owned Copperstone Gold Mine. The mine is estimated to produce an average of 45,000 ounces of gold annually. At the current spot gold price, this will result in an IRR of 120%. Join the gold bull market. Invest in American Bonanza Gold. Visit the website at AmericanBonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. PMI Gold has just raised $7.5 million to expand drilling at four former gold mines we own in Ghana. Ghana is Africa's second largest gold producer, and with neighbors like Newmont, Anglo Gold, and Goldfields, and a land position equal to the entire length of the Carlin Gold Belt, we're going for the gold. PMI Gold is listed in Canada and Frankfurt, and plans to list on the Australian Stock Exchange to finance development of our first mine at our Kubi Gold Project. Our plans are big and growing. Come grow with us. Have you been acquiring physical gold, silver, and coins? Are you receiving the best price and the best service you can? Why not work with the most recommended precious metals company in the country? Resource Consultants is recommended by over 20 newsletter writers, several websites, and countless stockbrokers and financial planners. Call them now and find out how they can help you. 800-494-4149. Or visit them on the web at www.buysilvernow.com. That's 800-494-4149. They'll be waiting for your call. Barkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Goldfields in British Columbia. Barkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Barkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Barkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. I am Jay Taylor, your host for Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Gold has risen from $250 to well over $1,200 since 2002. That has greatly improved gold mining profit margins and profits for gold investors. But mining stocks are very risky, so you do need to know which stocks have the best chance of success. I believe Magellan Minerals, traded Toronto under the symbol MNM, is one such company. That's why it is a top pick of my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Go to MagellanMinerals.com website to learn more. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love you're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have William Shera 
He's the president and CEO of Goldrich Mining Company uh, with us. Uh, it trades on the over-the-counter market under the symbol GRMC. Uh, last I looked, it was around $0.25 cents, uh, a share, uh, only 45 million shares outstanding. So you can see from a market cap perspective, it's really an inexpensive stock. Uh, about 50 million fully diluted shares outstanding. Uh, so I'm really pleased, well, William, that you can be with me. I understand you're uh, not in Alaska today. You're talking to me from uh, from Spokane. Is that right? That's right. And real good to be with you today, Jay. Great to have you. Uh, you you've been up uh, most of the year, I think, up or most of the summer, I should say, not the year, but the last few weeks. Uh, most of your time has been spent up in Alaska. Is that right? That's right. That's where our major property is, and now within, uh, of course, with. Uh, uh, the season opening up, you have about 24-hour daylight up there, so things are exploding at this time of year. So people don't get much sleep up there in the in the summertime. Well, not as much as uh, it makes it makes up for what they slept in winter. That's for sure. <laughs> so. Well, uh, I'm wondering if if you can just tell us why Alaska. It is a difficult place. I know the last we spoke, you were um, you were rushing to get your equipment up there uh, during the time before the ice froze because you had to use some ice roads, I believe it was, to get the equipment into the area where you're exploring, developing. Uh, why Alaska? Well, Alaska, as far as uh, being pro development and understanding the value of mineral development, Alaska is probably the top state. In, in the Union. Uh, Nevada, of course, is high, but Alaska I would even rate higher, and that mm-hmm. they really put an emphasis on developing it. In fact, this particular area was picked by the same person that picked Prudhoe uh, Bay. I don't know if you know the history of Alaska, but mm-hmm. when they were becoming statehood, they were given the ability to choose certain areas that they wanted to be state land versus federal land. Uh, the Prudhoe Bay area was one area they picked, and then this particular area was the other area where they thought it was high for uh, mineralized potential. Okay, could you give our listeners some idea exactly where your project is located and the name of that project, where it's located in Alaska? Right, we're about 190 miles north of, almost directly north of Fairbanks, mm-hmm. and the name of it is Chandelar, and uh, we have several deposits on it, but this particular area is called the Chandelar District. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you started producing some gold last summer, I believe, uh, a small amount, and you're really operating as a placer miner. Could you explain to our listeners who might not be familiar with, with mining what placer mining is as opposed to hard rock? Right. Well, our main target is the hard rock target, but in addition, we have uh, s- several excellent placer uh, deposits. What that is, if you can picture it, in fact, I'll even describe, J.R., our property, and it'll help the people understand uh, historically, we have, we have control of an entire historic uh, mine district there, about 27 square miles. But if you picture uh, a mountain, and then historically they mined the hard rock, which is you know actually what it is, hard rock. You go in there and chip away and blast away on the hard rock to make mm-hmm. tunnels in it. They mined hard rock on various positions around the mountain. And then that mountain, too, over the eons has broken down, and in the valley surrounding the mountain are gravel or alluvial, which is another word for placer that surrounds it. So historically, they mine both the hard rock on the mountain, and the mountain goes up to about 5,000 feet, and the base is about 2,000 feet. And around the base, there's seven different placers where there was also historic production. Mm-hmm. Well, you had some production last year. Um, it. Uh, what about this year? Do you expect to produce some gold this year? Yes. Last year what we did, uh, and as everybody knows, uh, the world fell off uh, the cliff financially in 2008, mm-hmm. and even into 2009, 
it was difficult for junior mining companies for uh, to get financing. Well, we had delineated um, a large amount of uh, on placers where uh, you know the potential was there, and people familiar with this uh, offered to finance it, and we went ahead. Last year, we developed a commercial-sized uh, production facility, moved it up on site, and we just had a test run, so we would be open to be so we're ready to begin commercial production this year. And uh, this year, uh, we have a uh, mine study on Jay on one of those placers, just on one half of one of the placers that we have drilled out. We have about a uh, a mine study shows about a ten-year mine life ramping up to about twenty-five thousand ounces of gold per year, twenty-five to thirty thousand ounces. This year, we're we're biting it off like a, uh, in 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 steps here. This year, we'll be producing a, our goal is to produce around five thousand to seven thousand ounces. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, five thousand to seven thousand ounces at current gold prices would would be um, a pretty nice payday. Uh, certainly, then you. Expect then to apply that, I guess, towards um, towards exploration development. Then exactly with uh, we 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 are now can be up and running, and um, uh, it, what it does it provides an immediate source of cash for us with minimal uh, investment, capital investment. Approximately, it'll take us to get to this level is four million dollars is going to cost us uh, to get into production this year. Mm-hmm. We've already bought all the equipment, have moved it all up on site. And we're currently already in the uh, getting all the facilities ready to begin production in June mm-hmm. uh, with with the um, with uh, the equipment we have up there. And with the equipment we have up there, without any further capital investment, we can ramp up to about twelve thousand ounces next year. I see. Well, um, what do you figure your operating cost is per ounce? Uh, you, I think what you're talking about there, the four million is or five million, four million dollars is capital cost. What do you figure your operating cost? I believe you do have to. Obviously, haul haul up uh, or use um, energy oil or or something gas right. or oil or something. Yeah. You know, everything's run by diesel. It's, we're at the same latitude as Red Dog Mine. I don't know if you're familiar with mm, that. Sure, it's about 300 miles to our west. Yes, and it's uh, same. They're open pit, and they've always you know they've had to you know haul in all their diesel, which is common there. And but we can get in there quite. Quite economically, we have a 4,400 foot airstrip that we can bring in the big Hercules and everything. So we're not where this area was once extremely isolated and no longer is. Mm-hmm. And we also have a permanent surveyed uh, uh, state highway right away. The road isn't in yet, but it's all surveyed all the way up to our, our road thing mm. uh, system there. So um, uh, as far as your question, Jay, was on that. Operating cost. Uh, what do you figure your operating cost, cost then would be this year? In in the in the in the mines plan that we have, it's uh, it's about four hundred and forty two dollars mm. cash costs oh. uh, to operate. This year will probably be a little higher because it's a beginning year. So mm-hmm. I'd say uh, between four fifty and five hundred cash costs. And nope. of that four four million uh, J on that, only about a million, about one point seven was for capital costs. The other was working capital, which will be by the end of the season. Uh, you know that that'll be there for us to use for other things. Oh, that's terrific! Well, I think uh, I'm wondering if you could give our listeners some sense of the exploration potential you have here, because you know we added your your story to our newsletter because uh, not so much because of the smaller scale of production uh, from the placer or from the alluvial, but basically because of the longer term exploration potential. Right. Could you give our listeners a sense of the potential there for you know if you know what do you know about the about the targets that you're going to be going after. 
Right. Well, the main thing to realize, this is a hard rock story, not a placer story, even though the placer adds a nice kind of frosting on the cake and allows us to uh, have cash flow immediately right now, and that'll be funding us and helping us on the hard rock as we move forward. And it's, it won't be, and even though it's the placer second, even though it'll, it'll produce significant cash for us, but the main target is our hard rock. Mm-hmm. And what, when we started with this, Jay, like I, as I mentioned, historically, it was uh, they had mined on the old timers had mined on the old vein systems, mm-hmm. and some of it went as high as ninety ounces, uh, no very gaudy stuff, but low tonnage. Wow. And when we first started, we thought we'd apply modern techniques and simply um, we didn't expect that high a grade, but we thought it would, you know very strong veins that we'd be able to go in there and expand it. And uh, but as we started developing this. And uh, the current management uh, got the property in about 2003. As we started developing it, uh, we started realizing that that was not the source of the gold in the veins. It was a much larger target. And basically, as you know, as you get different data points, and we have over 5,500 you know, rock and soil samples, about 40 trenches, and we've sunk about 39 scoping uh, drill holes, scoping drill holes around um, on, on some of the main, main structures that are not the placer structures. But what started to come in focus, you know, every data point is like, say, a pixel in the picture. In about 2008, we, a whole different picture started coming in, and that was a very large mineralized body. It's about five miles long. It's wow. 18, yeah, I mean, it's an enormous structure. It's about 18, 1,800 feet across, about three to 400 feet thick. And the funny thing about this was that as this started coming in focus internally, uh, when we started seeing the data, other people, uh, you know, other um, consultants that we had up there and experts we had come up there, had come, started coming back to us. People had seen the property and said, hey, wait a second, we've been thinking about this. And, and, and from the outside, they started coming and they said, hey, have you looked at Natalka and Suki Logue, which are large, um, you don't have the flashy high grade, but there you have, uh, for example, Suki Logue, which we believe is an analogous to us. That's in Russia, and uh, it's about uh, that. Depending on how your cutoff point, there's different ways to measure. Is about 750 million tons at about an average cutoff grade of 2.2 uh, grams per ton, which is an enormous. I mean, uh, you know, that's oh, the huge. type of target we're looking at here, and that's what oh. starts coming into focus. Well, you know, William, uh, stories are a dime a dozen in this business. Uh, we have. Um you know, I'm going to be going to a gold show up in at the Cambridge House show this coming weekend up in Vancouver, and there's, you know, a couple hundred companies. They all have stories. But here's one of the reasons that I added you to my list, your company to my list. It's, it all always boils down to management, doesn't it? And we, we're really just out of time here, but I've got to ask you if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about your management real quickly. I know uh, because... You know, that's really what matters. Would you just give them a quick uh, overview of your management team, well, starting with Gold, yourself? Goldrich recently was taken over by Dick Walters. That was in 2003. Dick was one of the original founders of Yamana Resources. Right. Uh, and myself, that's where I kind of bit my, uh, cut, cut my teeth in the mining industry, and I was there with them for eight years, the last four years of which I was the, uh, the CFO. And um, so... Starting with Dick, and he has an eye for large. I mean, that's his specialty uh, to see large targets. I mean, you know, like you said, stories are a dime a dozen, but most stories never have the potential this even beginning as this does now and what's coming into focus. 
Other people are aboard uh, would be Jim Duff, who was the president for the South American operations of Coeur d'Alene. Ran over seven mines and, uh, you know, put in the $450 million plant down in Bolivia that uh, was responsible for putting that in for Coeur d'Alene. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have uh, uh, Bill Orchow, who was the president uh, of Kinnicott, uh for quite a few years, and also Kinnicott Energy, and then more recently was president of Rivette. We have Riz Bigelow uh, with, uh, and his background, and basically on the technical side, but he was uh, with... A de- uh, uh, WGM and was responsible at that time for uh, putting Pogo, uh, developing Pogo, sure. discovery large deposits. So we have a very nimble. That's his name of few, but a very uh, nimble board that can really, you know, respond to different things as they come up. Well, you know, I've, I've got Chen. Are you there, Chen? Yes, I'm here. You've been listening in, I guess. Uh, any comments? Unfortunately, we're out of time. But do you have any comments you'd like to make? Yes, I understand you have a drilling campaign this year. What's yes, plan? we are, Chen. In fact, we already have uh, have the uh, the drill is already on site. We've already brought that up a hard rock, uh, hard rock drilling uh, core drilling program, twenty thousand feet uh, to begin with with the main targets. Okay, and when do you expect to have some drill results back then? Um, saying we're starting, Jay. Usually, there's a turnaround. Of course, we'd start in. Uh, in June, I'd say we probably have some results back in July. Um, I don't know if we'd uh, announce them on a hole-by-hole, hole, but we should start seeing results back in July. Okay, how can people follow up and keep track of those results? What's your website? Uh, it's uh, www.goldrichmining.com. Fantastic. Thank you, William, for being with us. Unfortunately, we're out of time. We'll have to have you on again sometime. That's all. Well, good. Uh, for this Thanks. segment, folks, we're going to, but don't go away because we have Ian Gordon coming up next. Ian, the great deflationist, but you know what? He's been right as can be since I first met up with Ian back in the late 1990s. A thousand dollar, a thousand gold, I'm uh, sorry, $4,000 gold, 1000 on the Dow. Is it a ridiculous idea? We're going to come back and listen to what Ian has to say. He's, he's suggesting it's not. So you won't, want to go, you won't want to miss what Ian has to say. We'll be right back with Ian Gordon. it's up or down or if you're looking to improve your portfolio our experts are ready to talk to you call now toll free 866-472-5790 that's 866-472-5790 voice america business network know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the problem so that effective remedies can be prescribed. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to nearly double the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has lost nearly half its value in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. 
Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I believe Columbus Silver Corp traded Toronto symbol CSC and in the United States symbol CSLVF offers a potential gain of several fold over its March 31st price of 18 cents. I say that because of its low market cap, its Mojion gold and silver property hosting a partly delineated deposit containing 18 million ounces of silver and 300,000 ounces of gold equivalent. I say that also because of a strong management team. The stock is, of course, not without risk, but in my view, the risk reward ratio is presently very favorable. Go to ColumbusSilver.com to learn more. Apollo Gold is a gold-producing and exploration company that recently brought the brand-new Black Fox Mine into production. Apollo's 100% owned Black Fox Mine is located in the world-renowned gold-producing district of Timmins, Ontario, Canada. It's expected to produce over 100,000 ounces of gold annually. Apollo Gold also has tremendous potential for additional gold discovery as they continue their current exploration program on their recent new discovery at the Gray Fox property, which is adjacent to the Black Fox Mine, as well as its new land acquisition of Pike River. With gold prices near an all-time high, investors should consider Apollo Gold as an outstanding opportunity to invest in an undervalued junior gold mining company, well positioned to take advantage of a bull gold market. Apollo Gold trades on the New York Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol AGT and on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol APG. Visit Apollo's website at www.apollogold.com. Apollo Gold, a golden opportunity for investment. Coronado Resources is a Canadian-based exploration and development company trading on the TSX Venture Exchange. Its wholly owned Madison Gold Copper Project in Montana, USA has received revenue from high-grade gold and copper shipments while developing its underground workings to 250 feet below surface while limiting share dilution. Coronado is now driving the decline an additional 60 feet below the lowest workings to access the rich gold mineralization encountered from recent drilling and continue exploring the system, which is open at depth. Merex Gold, with 800 square kilometers of contiguous permits, Merex and exploration partner IM Gold have spent $11 million on the advanced stage Surabaya Gold project in Mali. Merex's indicated gold resource is based on 4% of the mineralized Surabaya megastructure. An aggressive 20,000 meters of drilling will begin to determine the true size of the Surabaya gold deposit. For more information about Merex Gold, visit us on the web at www.merexgold.com. That's M-E-R-R-E-X gold.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Hard times into good times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questions4taylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, 
Taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Well, it's a distinct pleasure for me to have one of my best friends with me to, as today's special guest, and he is Ian Gordon. He's a veteran stockbroker and mining company financier. He's an astute investor and a great economic historian in my book. Ian is a globally renowned economic forecaster. He's the author of the Long Wave Analyst uh, newsletter. Uh, he's a student of economic and investment history, as I just said. He's uh, got a unique analysis of the cycle, uh, the economic cycles, and that's garnered him praise from many notable sources, including some exceptionally well-known investment managers. Ian is a consultant to many mining companies and has assisted many junior firms in raising capital over the last number of years. Uh, in fact, I remember back in 1998 or 1999 when Ian first, uh, Ian and I first met up, he was uh, aggressively uh, he, uh, raising capital for mining companies. He was the first guy out there doing so because he had the conviction uh, that we were headed into some big trouble, that the currency system was going to have some problems uh, with enormous amounts of debt, and he's been dead on uh, exactly right about all of that, and almost... I think everything that Ian has predicted has basically come come to pass so far. I'm not I'm not completely convinced his timing was 100% spot on, but his certainly the direction and the foresight was second to none. Ian, welcome to turning hard times into good times. Well, thank you, Jay. It's just really great to have you again. You've been on a couple of times, and I remember the last time we had you on, I believe you were on with Robert Prechter, and it was really interesting because. You uh, you made Prechter look like uh, well you look like a bull compared to Prechter because you were suggesting a thousand on the Dow, Prechter was suggesting something like six or seven hundred or something like that. But uh, we got a little chuckle out of that. But no, really, people who are who hear that kind of a number, they're not laughing. I mean, people are really sort of uh, they they don't believe it. I think there's just disbelief. Most people can't believe that anything so serious uh, as that could happen in good old U.S. of A. And we're going to get to your theories as to why uh, we're going to have a long, tough time in the equity market. But before we get there, before we get to the meat of your message, can you tell our listeners how they can follow your work? Um, all my work is on my website, uh, www.longwavegroup.com. And uh, everything that I've ever written, I've been writing since '98, is there. Hmm. I think uh, one of the things that... Uh, People should really take a good hard look at as a piece that we wrote in 2007 uh, called This Is It, because essentially when I wrote This Is It, uh, it anticipated everything that was going to happen as a result of those best ends fund uh, uh, failing in August 19, uh, sorry, 2007. So we, we envisaged that the stock market would peak as it did in October 2007 at 14,200 on the Dow. We said that we were going to have a massive housing crisis and a massive banking crisis and uh, London and New York would be uh, much smaller than they had been uh, up to this point in time and and we would have an international debt uh, uh, crisis as well. Mm. Well, you are absolutely right about that. Now, you, you sort of... Uh suggested that the turning point, though, might have come a bit earlier, perhaps in 2000, the downward leg here in this major cycle. And we'll get, we want to get to the, to the long-wave cycle in just a second. But do you sort of look at 
this section or this this uh, contraction period beginning in the year 2000 or 2007 then? Well, it, it, to my mind, it really begins in 2000, and I think a lot of people would uh, kind of agree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, we have developed, uh, which is available on our website, a thing which we refer to called the Lifetime Economic, Financial, and Investment Map, and that basically tells you when the seasons are going to change, when you're going to go from one season to another in the Kondratiev cycle that we follow so closely. Mm-hmm. So that uh, the season changes in 2000 because, A, you get the stock market peak, particularly the speculative stock market peak. And uh, as we know, that NASDAQ peaked in March 2000, and it's never been anywhere near where it was in March 2000. Also, you get a, a peak in consumer confidence, and uh, we know that uh, 2000 really the, was the peak in consumer confidence in January 2000. If you look at uh, the numbers, uh, that shows it to be at that point, because at that point, people are making money so easily in the stock market, and the euphoria is basically uh, reaches uh, its peak at that time because money comes so easily to people. So when that uh, when that stock market peaks, as it did in uh, the Dow in January 2000, NASDAQ in March 2000, we say we move into season change, which is going into winter, which is the season of payback when debt is washed out of the system. Mm-hmm. Because uh, the, in the previous season, the autumn, that's when the, you get the massive buildup of debt that occurs during the cycle. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to get into uh, specifically the individual seasons in a little more detail, but before we get there, Ian, could you just tell our listeners that might not be familiar with the name Kondratiev, you're talking about the Kondratiev cycle. It is, It was created, or at least the, the origins of the theory was created by Nikolai Kondratiev. Uh, would you care to tell our listeners a little bit about him? Well, he was a Russian economist, and he wrote his thesis in the uh, mid-1920s. He, he, he developed this uh, long cycle uh, based on uh, things like interest rates, uh, trade, uh, um, consumer, uh, uh, prices, and so on. And, uh, and this cycle, to him, at that time, lasted uh, approximately 50, 60 years. Um, and for his pains, you know, he said capitalism uh, would go through, these, uh, through this big, big cycle, but uh, probably wouldn't fail. And so for his pains, uh, Stalin put him into a gulag where he died mm-hmm. in the 30s. So I basically, you know, took that uh, cycle. I'm very interested in, in history. Uh, that's my, I have a degree in history and started to sort of really sort of work with this cycle and develop it. And I think uh, I'm quite proud of the fact that I think that I've developed it far beyond what Kondratiev have, had ever envisaged. Mm-hmm. Well, I have a, a brilliant, a beautiful chart in front of me, Ian, and I know that folks can go to your website and, and see this chart, the long wave cycle, that actually goes back to about the time of the Revolutionary War. It goes back four cycles. Uh, you have actual data on that chart, you, do you not? It's, it's the equity markets. You've got gold. You've got, uh, C, you've got inflation uh, as measured by the CRB. Um, you, have, um, you have interest rates. Uh, you have U.S. total debt to GDP from about the early 1900s or mid-1900s on up to the present. Where did you get this data? I got it from um, uh, a company uh, in um, Colorado called Top Line Investment mm-hmm. Graphics. And uh, John Carter uh, basically has assembled 
uh, you know, absolutely priceless data. And uh, I asked him, I phoned him one day, and I said, you know, here's my, here's the Kondratiev cycles, you know, starting in 1789. And they're, you know, we're in the fourth cycle right now. John and I sort of showed him what we're in. I said, can you superimpose on, on these cycles interest rates, um, prices, uh, the price of gold and stock prices, and he was able to do that. Going in many cases, going all the way back to um, you know the, the, that period, 1789, and for interest rates, he, can go, he went back to 1800. Mm-hmm. For gold prices, what we did was uh, because the gold price was fixed, we took a gold mining stock that happened to be one of the earliest gold mining stocks listed on the New York Stock Exchange, which was Homestate Mining, which is now Barrick. And he, uh, we didn't want to use gold prices because, as I said, they were fixed at twenty dollars and sixty-seven cents, and then raised to thirty-five uh, by Roosevelt in nineteen thirty-three. Uh, and then, of course, they were allowed to go free in nineteen seventy-one when Nixon abandoned the gold standard. But uh, we w- wanted to see what was happening during this cycle to to gold stock prices, and so we used Homestake. And uh, when I got the, all the data back and I got the, these charts back uh, superimposed on my Kondratiev uh, cycle, it was like an eye-opener to me because I suddenly recognized that you could actually tell when you were going to go through each of the season changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, maybe I should describe a season to the Yes, I think, you, I, I think that would be great. Um, I think that's probably a good time to do it then because you start out, the, these cycles start with the spring, then it goes to a summer, an autumn, and then a winter. So if you could just walk our listeners through those cycles, perhaps starting with spring, what happens in spring, and, and maybe let us know when the current cycle began, the spring cycle for the current right. uh, season. Yeah. Well, you know, first of all, I call this uh, the long cycle, the long wave uh, cycle, really. I call it a, you know, a lifetime cycle, and I think that's an important sort of thing for people to understand because, uh, we've never lived, at least in a meaningful way, where we are currently positioned in the cycle, because it's, it's our lifetime. It lasts, uh, you know, meaningful lifetime, and this cycle is going to last, you know, 70, 80 years. Uh, the earlier cycles lasted less than that, and there's an explanation for that, uh, which I'm not really going to go into because it'll confuse people. Yeah. And so, uh, assuming it's a 60-year cycle, the 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 cycle begins with the spring, which I call the birth or the rebirth of the economy. Then it moves from spring, and each of these seasons is about a quarter of the entire length of the cycle. We move from spring into summer, and uh, then from summer into autumn, and autumn into winter. Now, spring being the rebirth of the economy, its uh, debt has been wrung out of the system so that the economy can start refreshed. And our present cycle, spring started in 1949, just after the Second World War. So really we'd gone through a depression starting in 1929 with a stock market peak. And uh, then, you know, debt was being wrung out of the system. And you can see that uh, on the the chart. You can see the Mm -hmm. debt to GDP as uh, it comes all the way down as, you know, during the the winters, debt is taken out of the economy. And... um, we started refreshed, you know, the economy is able to assume again in 1949 because the other thing is there were savings. The American mm-hmm. people had gone and, you know, saved, particularly during the Second World War, they'd financed, you know, helped finance the war through the 
issue of war bonds and so on. So servicemen serving overseas were putting part of their pay into war bonds. And, mm-hmm. and so an economy started with a, a lot of consumer savings. So the economy started in 49. And it goes into 1966. So we also say, okay, each season has a, a, a preferential sort of investment uh, uh, model to, uh, to ut- be utilized it. And so in spring, you know, because it's the rebirth of the economy, you want to go into, you want to be in stocks and real estate because they're going to start from very low levels and rise because the economy is rising. People are getting richer so they can afford homes and, uh, the economy's starting to do well. So companies are doing well and prospering. So, uh, the stock market, as a matter of fact, at the beginning of 1949, there was a bear market. And, it ended the winter, and that uh, the Dow was at 161 points. And then, so through spring, Dow climbs all the way to 995 points oh. in 1966. And then you, that peak in stock prices is an indication you're moving from out of spring into summer. And the, uh, one of the interesting things about summer has always been the inflationary period of the cycle. And the reason for that is there's always been a war in the summer, and it's always been financed by heavy money printing. Mm -hmm. And so in the first cycle, it was the War of 1812. The second cycle was the U.S. Civil War. The third third cycle was the First World War. And the fourth cycle was the Vietnam War. So Mm -hmm. you're going to get inflation in the summer so that you want to go into the – if you want to invest, you want to buy things that are going to sort of do very well during that kind of – do very well during inflation. So real estate, again, is a great place to be, but stocks aren't a good place to be. Uh, things like uh, collectibles are great to be in and during inflation. Uh, commodities are a great thing to be in, and precious metals do very, very well. And we know that gold peaked in 1980 at $850 an ounce, and silver was a bit little better than $50 an ounce. So Right, and Ian, I can remember very well, uh, during the 1970s, it was a horrible place to invest in stocks in general. Uh, the market could not get over 1,000. It tried and tried and tried. It was always bounced back down. Uh, and, and so, but commodities were the place to be. So then we go into autumn then. Well, we know when we're going into autumn, Jay, and that's one of the things when I got this back from John Carter, Top Line Investment Graphics, as I looked at these charts, and I said, boy, you know, at the end of the summer, there are four things that happen, and they happen at the end of every summer when you look at it, this chart. Mm-hmm. One is a peak in interest rates, and everyone will remember the 1981 peak. I think in the U.S. it was in excess of 15%. A peak in prices and your consumer prices. A bear market in stocks, and people should remember the 81-82 bear market, which took the Dow down to 777, and a big recession. In fact, a lot of people have been talking about that recession today and sort of making comparisons mm-hmm. what we're going through today to the recession, the 81-82 recession. So those are four events occur at the end of summer, heralding in the beginning of autumn. And the same four events, you can go back occurred between 1920 and 21, same four events occur just before 1864, and again, even going back to 1816, those same four events. So now you're going into autumn. Mm-hmm. Autumn is always a period, and remember again, this is a lifetime cycle of the biggest bull market in stocks, bonds, and real estate. Mm-hmm. So what we've just gone through in terms of the huge stock bull market, the huge real estate bull market, and the huge bond uh, bull market, 
we will have to wait, you know, a long, long time for the, that to repeat again. Mm. And so when, those, when that big stock market peaks, as I say in 2000, and that was the euphoric peak, the, the peak in consumer confidence, and gold bottoms at the end of autumn. So the gold price goes from 850 at the end of summer to 250 at the end of autumn. Those three events signal the onset of winter. And winter, of course, is the deflationary depression stage of the cycle when debt is wrung out of the system. And so now we're in the winter and we're seeing that process of, of debt being washed out of the system. It's going to be extremely painful. We're witnessing what's going on in Europe. We witnessed what went on here in the, you know, in the United States with the, the collapse of Lehman and Bear Stearns and almost the collapse of Goldman Sachs, Citigroup, and so on. So um, that debt is now starting to come out of the system. We've seen General Motors and Chrysler fail because of debt, and uh, there's going to, and a lot of consumers are failing because of the debt, you know, being pushed out of their homes and so on. So that system is starting to uh, develop, and the debt is being unwound, and it's going to be very, very painful. So I take it you do not see this uh, where we're at now as being comparable with the bottom in 1982. Oh, absolutely not. No, we're not even at 1932. Okay, so but what we hear most of the time on the mainstream media is that the worst is over, and we're onward and upward with happy days again. Well, <laughs> you know, they'd like to believe that, but Jay, uh, when, you get, when you get into this cycle, as I've done, it, it is very prophetic. It basically lays it all out for you, and I know that debt has not been wrung out of the system. Right. And uh, so we're seeing that, you know, what's happening in Europe. And uh, that's going to cause tremendous pressure on the European banks because they are, have been the, guy, the, the institutions that have lent money to the, these European countries. So German and French and, and to a less extent, British banks are all, you know, uh, have a lot of money lent out to these countries that are never going to be able to repay that that debt. Mm-hmm. Well, we, uh, you know, we're, we're so we're looking at some very very difficult times here, Ian. I'm wondering if you could give our listeners some sense of uh, when we come back after the break here. We're going to take a, a station break, um, a commercial break here, and when we come back, if you can give our listeners some sense of how far you think we're heading down, uh, that's what we're going to talk about as soon as we come back. So we'll be right back um, after the break. Okay, Jay. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790, Voice America Business Network. Have you been acquiring physical gold, silver, and coins? Are you receiving the best price and the best service you can? Why not work with the most recommended precious metals company in the country? Resource Consultants is recommended by over 20 newsletter writers, several websites, and countless stockbrokers and financial planners. Call them now and find out how they can help you. 800-494-4149. Or visit them on the web at www.buysilvernow.com. That's 800-494-4149. They'll be waiting for your call. 
Sparkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Sparkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Barkerville's own proposed open-pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Barkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Barkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. I am Jay Taylor, your host for Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Gold has risen from $250 to well over $1,200 since 2002. That has greatly improved gold mining profit margins and profits for gold investors. But mining stocks are very risky, so you do need to know which stocks have the best chance of success. I believe Magellan Minerals, traded Toronto under the symbol MNM, is one such company. That's why it is a top pick of my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Go to MagellanMinerals.com website to learn more. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I believe Columbus Silver Corp, traded Toronto, symbol CSC, and in the United States, symbol CSLVF, offers a potential gain of several fold over its March 31st price of 18 cents. I say that because of its low market cap, its Mojion gold and silver property, hosting a partly delineated deposit containing 18 million ounces of silver and 300,000 ounces of gold equivalent. I say that also because of a strong management team. The stock is, of course, not without risk, but in my view, the risk-reward ratio is presently very favorable. Go to ColumbusSilver.com to learn more. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Again, I want to thank each of you for listening to the show, and I want to thank our sponsors uh, for the second hour of today's show. I want to thank them for making this show financially viable. Our sponsors for the second hour are Barkerville Gold, Magellan Minerals, Apollo Gold, Columbus Silver, Coronado Resources, Uranium Energy, Goldrich Mining Company, and Canico Resources. Well, we're back here with Ian Gordon. Uh, at the break, uh, Ian, we talked about how low do you think this equity market can go? What's your target, and what's the justification for that target? Right, Jay. The, um, I, I've written a piece that's on my website called Dow 1000 is Not a Silly Number. So I've picked Dow 1000. Mm-hmm. Now, that would be 93% essentially from from the peak of um, January 2000. Mm-hmm. And, but the reason I pick 1,000 is because Dow 1000 was a, a major resistance point. All, as I said, in 1966, the Dow hit 995 and couldn't penetrate 1,000. And it hit 1,012 times without seriously getting through it. 
mm-hmm. until the big bull market began in 1982. So 12 hits at 1,000. That resistance point obviously then becomes, if you're a chartist, it becomes support, and mm-hmm. very big support. Um, we know that uh, the big bull market of 1982-2000 uh, essentially moved stocks like uh, about 1,500%, whereas the big bull market of 21-29, which was this, which was this, in the third Kondratiev cycle versus our current fourth cycle, both appearing uh, occurring in the autumn, that was only about just less than 600% move. And yet the bear market that followed that big roaring 20s bull market lost 90% of its value. Mm-hmm. But we've had a much more bigger bull market this time around, much more speculative speculation occurring in this market. So I think, the, you know, as I write, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. So we've got to expect something that's going to be a li- probably worse than what happened between 29 and 32, the 90% drop. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is that this time around, America isn't the same as she was in in the 1930s. She's going into uh, decline. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, she's lost uh, 8 million manufacturing jobs, I think, since George Bush was uh, president. So manufacturing is leaving... American shores. She's become the world's biggest detonation nation in the 1930s. She was by far and away the world's largest creditor nation. Um, she was really, to my, uh, uh, you know, in my kind of uh, thinking, she was the China of today. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I make the comparison. You know, China today is the world's greatest creditor nation. America was in the 20s and 30s and, and 40s, and. Um, the American government going into uh, the uh, the depression of the 1920s owed $16 billion. That was all. I mean, they'd basically been paying down debt after the First World War or during the 20s. So uh, it was a minuscule uh, amount of debt. So today, to fight this depression, America now has a $13 trillion debt load to, to bear and has a depression uh, in front of her. I think she's already in it, but that's beside the point. Uh, to f- try and fight this depression with a $13 trillion debt load is going to be extremely difficult. So, you know, you've got an America, a different country today than she was in the 1920s, 30s, and a country that's basically lost a manufacturing base to the East, and it's going to be very, very difficult. So eventually stocks have to reflect the reality of the economy, and I think the economy is going to be in dire straits because of the overwhelming debt. Debt now in the United States is over 360% of GDP. That's the total debt. And, you know, one of the things that we keep telling people is that GDP uh, in a depression drops dramatically. So that in the last depression, GDP dropped by 45%. So imagine today with a $14 trillion GDP uh, dropping to $8 trillion, and mm-hmm. suddenly the United States has a $13 trillion deficit, which is growing under Obama's sort of plans of by $2 trillion a year. And very quickly, the country itself is very quickly going to be at a sort of 200% of GDP debt. Position. So it's going to it's going to be quite horrendous. I think what we face, everything that's happening in the United States, we anticipated would happen. The housing crisis and so on. It's going to get worse because the economy is going to get worse and worse and 
worse. We've thrown a lot of money, the American government's thrown a lot of money at the economy to try and right things, but uh, I think the next leg is just about to happen. I think, you know, the big rally that we had from March 1929 when the Dow uh, hit, uh, you know, on the 6,000 point level uh, from 14,200, and the rally from March 6th, back to the 11,250 that we saw in April of this year was very much akin to the first rally that we had following the stock market crash of 1929. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Federal Reserve uh, did essentially the same as the Federal Reserve has just recently done. They brought down interest rates quite dramatically. They flooded the banks with money, and they were able uh, temporarily to right the ship, and the, uh, the stock market recovered. 50% 50% of its losses into April 1930. So I think that rally that we've just gone through is very similar to that first rally. So now I think we're on the second leg down, and um, this leg is going to, if it is a second leg, it's actually the third leg in an Elliott wave count, and it's always the it's always the worst kind of leg that we can experience in a downward move. Also, we must recognize that we're in a bear market. Richard Russell has said that we're in a bear market. So if we're in a bear market, it means that we're going to have lower highs and lower lows. Well, our high was 14.2 on the Dow. The recovery high was 11,250. The first low was something like 6,670 points. That was the first low in March 2009. So the next low has got to be below that first low. So I'm talking about the next low being somewhere in in the 5,000s level. Wow. Well, Ian, what do you say about, uh, what do you say to those that argue that the reason the Fed was not successful in overcoming the deflation during the first, uh, during the 1930s was because uh, we were on a gold standard? Uh, And that if we had not been on a gold standard, they could have stimulated the economy to such an extent that uh, that they could have pulled, you know, that we could have been pulled out of that mess back then. What do you, how do you respond to that argument? Well, we know, we know that the Fed did respond not, not as, uh, as sort of strongly as the Fed has responded this time, but we know the Fed responded pretty strongly. I mean, it's all written up in Rothbard's book, The Great Depression. Mm-hmm. And we know that, for instance, in one week alone during the October crash, the money supply was increased by 10% in a one week alone. And we know that interest rates during that crash in, in six-week period were brought down from 6 to 3.5%. Mm-hmm. So they did, they did respond very quickly to the crash. Mm-hmm. The thing that happened was that, uh, uh, you know, uh, typically like today, that the debt was overwhelmed the system. The ability of the Fed and the money that the Fed was trying to create couldn't come through the banks into the economy, which we're seeing exactly the same thing again this time around. You know, the, the, Fed, the Fed's creating oodles amounts of money, but it's not coming into the into the economy. Banks won't lend, and consumers can't borrow anyway. So, and you need the consumer to be spending because the U.S. economy is seventy percent driven by the by the U.S. consumer. So, if the consumer can't spend because it, he or she doesn't have the money to spend and can't go and borrow it from the bank because the bank won't lend it to him or her, uh, the economy can't get going again. We've got to wring the debt out of the system, and we've got. Now in the United States, you know, we've got like uh, 50, let's say $58 trillion worth of total debt. A lot of that is going to come out of the system. I don't even know how the U.S. is ever going to get 
around of paying off its debt. It would love to inflate it away, but I believe that we're in a, a massive deflation that's now occurring. Okay, here's here's an idea I want to run past you and see what you how you respond to it, Ian. In the 1930s, we had a gold standard still, and Roosevelt confiscated gold, and one of the arguments I've heard for that, and one of the arguments that uh, my good friend Larry Park says we won't see the same thing happen again, is that during that time frame, they needed to take gold into the Treasury so they could expand the money supply. Since we don't have a gold-backed system now, that's no longer necessary. However, it seems to me that what we have, what we do have now in a fiat currency system, in a liability money system, is uh, every time you try to stimulate the economy with more spending, you have more debt. In other words, debt is the raw material from which money is created. Right. Uh, is it possible that we're, instead of stimulating, we're digging ourselves deeper into a deeper deflationary hole? Well, I think, is that the way you I, see I, it? I think we are, Jay. We're, we're adding, we're trying to solve a debt problem by creating more debt. Uh-huh. I mean, we wrote a paper, it's the debt stupid. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, this is the problem that the whole world is facing. Look, in, in, the, in, the, in the 1929, really, it was only the U.S. that faced this problem. Yes, there was uh, the, the, the consumers in uh, Europe were, were not in debt. The corporations in Europe were not heavily in debt. The European countries were heavily in debt because they had to borrow from the United States to fight the war. Mm-hmm. And Germany had to pay reparations to the victors, and so on. So there was a, you know, there was a, there was a lot of uh, country debt around. But mm-hmm. the debt, the worldwide debt, forced that basically a worldwide deflation. And uh, you know, when the bubble burst, and that's what we're seeing now is the debt bubble is bursting. All this money is basically coming out of the economy. There's another argument too for deflation, and that's the asset prices are going to drop quite dramatically. Now, we're seeing that in, in real estate prices already occurring in the United States. It hasn't hit us here in Canada yet, but it will. And then we're going to see the stock market prices. So at the peak, the, the U.S. stock prices were worth about $16 trillion. Well, you take 90% off that $16 trillion, you've now dropped the value of U.S. stocks down to $1.6 trillion. So that's got to be massively deflationary. You would think it would affect all areas of the market. We haven't seen, we haven't seen wide pre- widespread price deflation yet. I would argue in the grocery stores and the commodity markets and so forth. Well, Ian, if you're right about this deflation, uh, and we do start to see massive declines in in price inflation of all manner of consumer goods, uh, capital goods, and what have you. What do you think about the bond markets? Are we going to see higher interest rates? It would your argument would bode well for bonds, perhaps, uh, in the sense that and I'm talking about uh, sovereign debt now. Um, that that in fact, you know, interest rates shouldn't go up if you have a, a, a dollar that is buying more, which by definition it would if you're having price deflation. Is it possible we could see the long end of the yield curve? Uh, U.S. Treasuries uh, stay low for the foreseeable future. Well, you know, I, I I don't think so, Jay. I think we're in a, a sort of a u- unique period in history, in a period that we've never been in before. Um, you know, we've never had a debt, uh, a massive worldwide debt sort of bubble of this of this uh, stature mm-hmm. ever. And I think that uh, you know, because of that, I, I mean, you know, do you want to go? In effect, you ask yourself, do I want to go long debt? Well, mm-hmm. do I do I want to buy debt? Well, 
we've got a debt problem. Why do I want to buy debt if we've got a debt problem? We have a debt bubble. Yeah. So why do I want to go and buy debt? Mm -hmm. I don't want to buy debt because I think interest rates are going to rise because they have to, to try to finance this massive amount of debt that these countries have have levered themselves into so that... uh, you know, the capital, the pool of capital worldwide is going to shrink dramatically as this debt is sort of unwinding out of the system. So that the available capital to finance this debt is going to become, you know, much much smaller, which means that interest rates have, I think, have to rise. So no, I I think the only area you want to go long debt is on the very short end and in the safest place, safest countries you can find. So a short end of the treasuries, three months or shorter or whatever. Yeah, where like you're that. basically getting people are buying U.S. treasuries. You know, uh, what's a two year is I think under one percent, isn't it? I think it's about six percent. Yeah. yeah, I um, mean it, it certainly is penalizing savers and rewarding people who live irresponsibly by spending more than they earn. That's for sure. That's been the policy that's gotten us into trouble, in my view. But I have to ask you, Ian, the inflationists, and there's many of my gold bug friends who are inflationists. They insist, you know, Peter Schiff would be one of them. Even Ron Paul is uh, on my show, has suggested that inevitably we're going to have inflation, not deflation. You think we're going to inevitably deflate. Now, here's the thing. What if Bernanke literally did what he suggested and used helicopters to spread trillions of dollars out over the landscape? Give common folks, people that are having trouble putting shoes on their kids' feet, paying the mortgages, uh, just give the common folks, you know, give them each a million dollars and let them go to it. Couldn't we see inflation if that were to occur? Well, you, you probably would. If, if the U.S. government said, look, we'll pay, we'll pay off everybody's debt and we'll give them all a million bucks or whatever it is, yeah, you you would definitely have inflation because uh, you know they would have the wherewithal to spend, and you'd have too much money chasing too few goods. But right now, you don't have that, and I don't see the U.S. ever being able to resort to that thing because that would that would basically collapse the dollar. Would it collapse the dollar in the United States empire? In essence, it would collapse. I mean, the U.S. would be a basket case, cause, and then you then you would see your interest rates rise to you know what they were in 1980. They would rise quite dramatically, which would kill the economy anyway. Mm-hmm. I just want to mention that we've we've talked to Bob Hoy on this show on fr- uh, frequent occasions as well, and Bob's main point is that the senior currency you have to differentiate from the senior currency. You were talking about Germany owing all this money to other countries, basically, and not to itself. Uh, the United States, um, though, as uh, with a well de- well defined, well established credit market system, Hoy maintains that senior currencies. Just don't go that route. That is the hyperinflation helicopter route. Does that make sense to you? Well, I, you know, I, 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 no, I don't believe it's it's the senior currency that doesn't go that way. Uh, I think it's uh, more a fact that what what we're seeing here, Jay, is to my to my way of thinking, is a a complete collapse of the whole world monetary system. Okay, because we have a monetary system, a world's monetary system for the first time in history that doesn't have any asset backing to it. Is that right? You're right. I, I mean, the, the, the world monetary system collapsed in the last depression. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're seeing, a, we're seeing a very close parallel to that collapse. And uh, I would say it collapsed because it was on a gold standard system. And 
you know, so that they, they, the the ability to create to print money to fight the depression was you know limited by the amount of gold that you had, and if you printed too much, people just took took your money and and swapped it for your gold. Mm-hmm. And this is what collapsed the system in the in in the 30s, in the early 30s, like Britain, you know, which we could argue was the senior currency at that time. Uh, you know, it was forced off the gold standard in 1931, and America was forced off the gold standard by 1933. So the whole world monetary system collapsed, and I think we're seeing a similar collapse occurring today. Then it was because of gold. Today, I think it's because of paper. Okay, so what you're saying is a gold a gold backed monetary system is no panacea for uh, for for stability in terms of monetary systems. Is it possible then, as a student of history, that basically what you're saying is that we have human beings pushing extravagance to the limit? That is, being irresponsible up to the point where they're living beyond their means and they can't do it any longer, and the system forces them to correct. Yes, I th- you know, and I think that, that that's the process we're going through right now. You know, you you've got just under an official 10% unemployment rate in the United States, but I think if you look at John Williams statistics it's it's uh, above 17% and could be as high as 22%. Um so all these people are being forced out of the economy. They the the real wages in the United States are dropping, and that's deflationary right there. I mean, I've forgotten what percentage of American people are dependent on the U.S. government for basically their their income. I think it's something like forty percent. Wow, people on food stamps, unemployment insurance, and so on. It's a massive amount of people that are just simply dependent on the U.S. government to sort of look after them. And uh, all this is deflation. The, the only answer that you know that you've come up with that, that could basically get us out of this would for Bernanke to to take the planes up and drop a million bucks on every American uh, family to get the economy going again. But that would absolutely uh, crucify the dollar, and the gold price would go ap- absolutely ballistic. Well, we couldn't create wealth that way, though. All we'd really do is redistribute wealth from the wealthy back to the to the masses, I would think. But uh, that's another topic way beyond the scope of, of what we can talk about this hour. Ian, you are extremely bullish on gold. You point out that during the 1930s, homestake you mentioned, and you have it on your chart, that the gold mining companies do extremely well. You're seeing the same thing happen this time. Is that I right? I mean, right? Could now, you just explain you know, why are you so bullish on gold well, and gold you know, mining? Jay, I was bullish on gold really when I started writing my piece because I knew we were coming to the end of autumn. So I started writing in 98. And I knew that the stock market couldn't go on for very much longer. So um, I essentially started to you know, move in terms of the way that I wanted to position myself and uh, you know, ultimately my clients 100% into gold and not in any other equities but gold equities and the physical gold because I knew all this was going to happen so we were we were essentially buying gold when it was at a bottom at around 250 we were financing gold companies at that time we couldn't mm-hmm. find too many people who would support the financings but we found uh, people like David Tice and so on approved yeah. there and uh, you know who believed in the same kind of scenario that we were sort of uh, putting out and so we've been in gold really since uh, since 2000, and we've been buying gold stocks and 
owning and buying the physical gold. And we've, you know, when I was a stockbroker, that's basically what our clients were doing. All of my clients basically came to me because they heard me speak about this and believed in it. So, you know, I think gold's got a long way to go because the real, the real uh, problems are only just beginning. Yeah. You know, we know that when Greece was uh, looking like a basket case, the German people f- flocked to buy gold so much so that it was very difficult to buy in Germany the physical gold. Yeah. So when the whole system goes down, as I believe it will, much like it did in the 1930s, when the whole monetary system collapses, uh, then you'll see such a run to gold because that's the only only money people will trust. Well, we're seeing it, certainly, we're seeing it happen so far, Ian, and I like to talk about the real price of gold. It's another Bob Hoy concept, but I started measuring it in my own way using the Rogers Raw Material Fund, and as I point out to my listeners and to my subscribers that we went uh, before the Lehman Brothers debacle uh, in September of 08, an ounce of gold would have bought only 15% of the Rogers Raw Materials Fund. It shot up to 44%. It's now about 42% after trailing back to 30%. So it seems to me that the case for the economics of gold mining companies is that the real price of gold rises dramatically. Do you see it that way? Yeah, well, yeah but I actually see the real price of gold rising uh, even more than the deflationary uh, the drop, simply because there isn't enough gold to go around to uh, take care of the demand that's going to uh, come because of the, the debacle that's a uh, Lying right in front of us. I mean, we only, we only produce 80 million ounces of gold a year from our from our mines, mm-hmm. and 80 million ounces doesn't go around very much for the people who really want it. I mean, pe- people who want gold aren't going to want an ounce. They're going to want uh, you know hundreds and or even thousands of ounces to, as a safeguard against this sort of calamity. And we know too, Jay, that in the 30s the move to gold was very very dramatic. Um, and so much so that uh, when Hoover was leaving office in 1932, after he'd been uh, lost the election to Roosevelt, his secretary of the Treasury said to him that uh, we don't have the gold to back the dollar. And the first thing Roosevelt did when he became president in March uh, 1933 was uh, confiscate U.S. Uh, people's gold because he replenished the Treasury with that gold. Mm-hmm. And don't forget, by confiscating the gold, he had the U.S. had effectively gone off a gold standard system because Americans now were forbidden to own gold right. and couldn't turn their paper into gold. So America abandoned the gold standard system, too. Okay, um, Ian, we only have a couple of minutes left, and I want to ask you, because I think this is a good point uh, in time to ask you, you mentioned that you see gold rising more than than most people think during this deflationary period of time. In fact, you're talking about a Dow-to-gold ratio of 0.25 to 1. And historically, we've seen the bottom of secular bear markets where we've seen a 1-to-1 ratio. So you're really predicting, in addition to the 1,000 Dow that you talked about earlier, a $4,000 gold price. Is that right? Well, I am. And I mean, you know, I've picked that number kind of out of the air. I just see that when when everybody wants it because the whole world is collapsing. And you remember, right now, China is sort of holding us all up. But I believe that she's a bubble that will collapse much as the United States collapsed in 1929. Um, and when that happens and people just run to gold, it'll, you know, there just won't be enough to satisfy the demand. And I think the price will be uh, quite, will rise quite dramatically. And, and I've 
you know, I'm already on record as saying why I believe the Dow will get to a thousand. Yeah, indeed. Uh, well, it, it seems to me that this has got to be uh, the buying opportunity of a lifetime for gold mining shares. That's what I've been telling my subscribers. Uh, I don't know if I if I buy the four, the point two five to four. I don't know, Ian. But if we get to a one to one, even there, we're, we're looking at a huge run for gold relative to stocks yet. Uh, it's, it certainly looks very, very bullish uh, from my point of view. Um, I was just going to ask you okay, a couple more just, things. Were, were could basic... I just come in on one point here? Yeah, please. Remember that in 29, the gold price was fixed at $20.67. But as the banking system in the United States started to collapse because of the debt problems, mm-hmm. everybody turned to gold. Mm-hmm. And yet the price was fixed at $20.67. And we know the U.S. Treasury was running out of gold because the Secretary of the Treasury told Hoover that. Yeah. But we know that there was a massive demand for gold. Well, if the price hadn't been fixed and this huge demand had come in, in to buy gold, where would the price have gone to? I think it would have risen quite dramatically. So at the bottom, when the Dow hit uh, 41 in uh, 1932, 41 points in 1932, gold was still at $20.67. Mm-hmm. So it was a two-to-one relationship. All mm-hmm. I'm saying is that now gold is free to rise, and the demand is going to be so huge that the relationship could be could be that quarter to one. That's very interesting. It's fascinating. It certainly it certainly means that you need to own gold, which is what your Kondratiev cycle tells you you need to own during the winter, the Kondratiev winter. And I would uh, suggest strongly suggest to listeners that they go to Ian's website again and check out his excellent work. Ian, you are providing a pay-for service now, though. I think that's new, too, isn't no, it? No, they've got two weeks, Jay, to get it free. Oh, my goodness. Well, they better hurry, then, shouldn't they? Give them your website again, Ian. What is that? Uh, longwavegroup.com. Longwavegroup.com. Uh, uh, Ian, just, just one quick question before we go to break here. Um, the gold stocks did very well in the 1970s. Uh, do you see them doing a lot better this time than they did in the 70s? I do, because we know that when, when the whole system started to collapse in the 30s, and remember, we're in that period again in the Kondratiev cycle, when that system started to collapse and everybody went to gold, the gold stocks, all capital flowed to gold. And it was only gold that people wanted to put their money in. They only wanted to invest in, in, in gold and gold companies. After Roosevelt confiscated gold, the only way they could own gold was through ownership of gold companies. We know that in 1940, according to the U.S. Bureau of Mines, there were 9,000 operating gold mines in the United States. Wow. So the huge amount of capital went into gold mines. I mean, if you go out through Nevada, you can see the little holes in the, mine, in the, in the high, side of the hills. Uh, you see it throughout the, north, throughout the western U.S. landscape. We had huge amounts of, of capital going into the gold fields, many of them now that you're financing and have been involved in financing in Ontario and Quebec, out in, in, um, uh, out in British Columbia as well. So it, it really does seem to be a very exciting time uh, for this sector, Ian, and I want to thank you very much for your, for your insights, for helping me personally many years ago get on board with this. I think we were both... Uh, birds of the same feather to a certain extent, but you certainly were uh, provided a lot of encouragement for me at times when it seemed as though the establishment were going to keep running uh, and, and keep moving things forward. It, it became difficult sometimes to stick with you on this, but, but you certainly haven't, um, ha- haven't wavered one bit, and so congratulations on your call, and uh, we'll have to have you back again sometime soon. Thank you, Ian, and don't go away, folks. We're going to be right back 
with a uh, the CEO of a mining company, uh, Chris Krupe. Uh, he's going to be with us, and he is the president of Paramount Gold and Silver. So we'll be right back with Chris Krupe. Don't go away. It's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Merex Gold, with 800 square kilometers of contiguous permits, Merex and exploration partner IM Gold have spent $11 million on the advanced stage Surabaya Gold Project in Mali. Merex's indicated gold resource is based on 4% of the mineralized Surabaya megastructure. An aggressive 20,000 meters of drilling will begin to determine the true size of the Surabaya Gold deposit. For more information about Merex Gold, visit us on the web at www.merexgold.com. That's M-E-R-R-E-X gold.com. Coronado Resources is a Canadian-based exploration and development company trading on the TSX Venture Exchange. Its wholly owned Madison Gold Copper Project in Montana, USA has received revenue from high-grade gold and copper shipments while developing its underground workings to 250 feet below surface while limiting share dilution. Coronado is now driving the decline an additional 60 feet below the lowest workings to access the rich gold mineralization encountered from recent drilling and continue exploration the system, which is open at depth. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the problem so that effective remedies can be prescribed. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to nearly double the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has lost nearly half its value in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. I am Jay Taylor, your host for Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Gold has risen from $250 to well over $1,200 since 2002. That has greatly improved gold mining profit margins and profits for gold investors. But mining stocks are very risky, so you do need to know which stocks have the best chance of success. I believe Magellan Minerals, traded Toronto under the symbol MNM, is one such company. That's why it is a top pick of my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Go to MagellanMinerals.com website to learn more. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. 
love their You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. <clears throat> Excuse me. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me Chris Krupe. And it sounds like I have the Krupe, the Krupe cough. But, uh, <laughs> <clears throat> Chris Krupe is the president of Paramount Gold and Silver. And uh, we talked to him several months ago. Uh, I'm glad to have you, Chris, back with me. Perhaps you can give our new listeners um, a little bit of a background as to what you're doing and your projects down in, in Mexico. Uh, welcome back. Well, Jay, thank you, and, and it's always a, a great to address uh, your, your followers and your fans, your friends. Um, we, um, we, you know, we've been quite busy. We set a program last fall when we raised uh, a, a substantial amount, about $23 million, to get out and uh, spent $6 million in 2010 on our San Miguel project in Chihuahua, Mexico. And we've, we've been very consistently doing that, spending about 500000 a month. Um, we've been building on an old resource estimate that was issued in uh, late 08. So um, we've been drilling for quite some time, including this year, and we've been working on just making that thing uh, quite a bit bigger than it was. And we've, um, we've had some success. We've put some assays out earlier in the year. Um, we've been drilling steady, nonstop. Uh, sometimes with one rig and uh, many times with two. Uh, so, so the project is, is getting uh, bigger. Uh, we will, we've, we've engaged a consultant in, uh, out of Reno who's a very, um, let's say very experienced in this area of Mexico and the Sierra Madres to uh, compile our next 43-101 compliant resource estimation. And that, that process has started and he's working along modeling our data. So we, we, looked, we looked to the fourth quarter of this year to, to release that, and everything looks like it's on track to do so. So we're, um, you know, we, we've been quite busy and, and really a little bit quiet, but really following our business plan that we, put, we set out to do last year. Mm-hmm. Well, you have uh, the, the name of your project. I mean, you have a large tract of land, I believe. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about the size of your holdings down there? Sure, sure, sure. Well, we've... We've put together a, a contiguous project of, of, of about uh, 400,000 or so acres, actually closer to five, 460,000 acres. And, um, it, we, you know, we really want it to be one, you know, we, we call it a district, and it's, it's now twinned with the Quarter Lane Palmarejo project because we surround that project, now that operating mine. And uh, it, it's quite exciting because it's, um, you know, initially folks thought that this was going to be a silver play, and, it's turned out that um, you know we, we get we're really building starting to build a gold resource, um, which uh, lies at depth the silver resource. So it, it's getting quite exciting from that perspective. Um, obviously, just from a pure valuation point of view, that's the economics of, of gold right now. Um, we're in um, an area in, Me- in Mexico which is fairly new and emerging uh, from a modern day perspective. On the south of us is Gold Corps L. Mm-hmm. Uh, Val mine, and on the, the north of us is the uh, mine finders and gamma gold mines, all all new mines, um, and um, you know there's there's a built up infrastructure here and an old culture of mining, so this is uh, this is something that's um, 
that's going to produce a lot of metals in the next uh, 10 to 20 years, and, and we're really at the early stages of this from, from, our, from Paramount's perspective. You referred a few minutes ago to an old reserve. I guess that's a, a non-43-101 compliant resource, I should say, not a reserve. What, uh, could you tell our listeners what those numbers were? Absolutely. Well, um, you know, we'd, we'd spent a couple of years uh, drilling up until the end of 88 when the markets really slowed down. And, 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 and in fact, it, it, we, did, we do have a 43-101 compliant resource. It's not a proven reserve. The, the spacing wasn't... Uh, Close enough, but but uh, and at the end of '08 we ended with 2.6 million ounces. Oh right, okay. Yeah, so it's um, it's actually that that, that that's a bit uh, a bit deceiving in a way because it's a silver gold resource. So we expressed it in gold at I believe a 53 to one uh, silver to gold ratio, and you know you can go back and forth with these numbers, and at the end of the day it's it's all metal. Um, so so we're building on that, and you know we've been drilling now since mid '09 on the heels of uh, of a very substantial investment that Albert Friedberg at a Toronto made. Uh, in March of '09, so you know he 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 kicked started our program here with about nine uh, nine million dollar financing in March, and um, and really that that really helped us to get the wheels turning again, and so at about mid mid year '09 we've we've been drilling now for um, you know I give it uh, we're pushing on pushing on a year now, so we'll we'll wrap this program up at the end of this year. So you know our, we have an objective, a corporate objective, Jay and. We really want to, we really want to hit the five million ounce mark, and that would break down into um, uh, two million ounces of gold and, and about 150 million ounces there, give or take, of silver. And there's, a, and we believe that you know the major miners are really the ones that will be looking at this project when it gets to that size, and that's the people we want to attract. And right. So are your your silver uh, the silver metal is mostly at the top and then you're right you're getting gold values deeper down is that it we are and that's on that's on sort of the legacy sort of the older areas that we we, we drilled but what's really interesting in this and that was an old vein system an old high grade sort of vein system mm-hmm. but what's really interesting is that um, you know with the help of uh, with our with, with our friends from Seabridge Gold who spend some time down there as as, as they are uh, you know partnered with us through through um, Albert Freeberg, we, we've really we've really discovered two brand new areas, um, and they're 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 strict. They're exclusively uh, gold uh, dominated systems, and they're they're lower grade but bulk tonnage targets, and they call it the Monte Cristo and the San Francisco, and they're two large domes. And you know, there's a, there's actually a presentation on our site, and people can go refer to them. But they're actually two big hills, and this is the kind of thing that you know really gets ex- some excitement when you when we can put together very large. Um, a type of um, package that will be perhaps mined for many, many years with a very long mining life, because that really drives some economics of this. Of this mm-hmm. and well, well, I can tell you that you know when I first looked at the uh, at your story, realizing that the uh, uh, the mineralized trends uh, from the your neighbor there that uh, is now in production, I believe uh, that they seem to be moving on to your properties, and I guess that's. What, could you tell our listeners a little bit about the size and scope of your drill targets? Sure, absolutely. Well, you're absolutely right. The Quarter um, Lane Mines, which is a, a U.S.-based uh, silver company, um, uh, you know, has that mine that, that they've just commissioned within last year. And there are large, very large systems that run for many miles. And we were strategic in picking up, uh, you know, picking up the ground that you know, we believe these trends run onto. And you know, we're just getting around to looking at some of that. We've got such a a large scope, but I think I think the idea is that the, the mineralization here is um, is vast, and and the trends go. And when I mean miles, I mean tens of miles in many cases. Mm. And um, so it's really a matter of 
what can we do in the short run with you know the most the least amount of dollars to get great value for the dollar to build a resource lovely thing is there's actually an operating mill right in the middle of all this which um, you know needs or it happens to be owned by someone else but the, the interest, you know, $400 million went into building that thing. So, wow. um, you know, it, it actually makes what we have interesting because, you know, there's a quick, there's a, there could be a quicker turn to production if, if need be. So, mm-hmm. so we're working on that, and we're working on getting this, you know, into past the sort of resource estimate into the, you know, uh, economic uh, analysis or scoping study stage. We'll really set the terms of, you know, how do we, how are we going to mine this thing? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, you know, we want to answer the question, how big is it? And the yeah. second question, how do you, you know, what's it worth? Yeah. yeah those well, I mean, it's uh, clearly, so we're looking at an open pit target? Well, the new targets would be open pitable. Yeah. And uh, the older targets would be, the, you know, the silver resource would be open pitable. And then, you know, at a certain depth where we get down to a certain point, we, we go underground, and that's where the, actually, conveniently, the gold, ass, gold resource is. Yeah. In fact, grades seem to get better at depth in this district. Wow. Great. That's very, very exciting. I should tell our listeners, and I failed to do so when we first uh, came on, Chris, that your company trades under the symbol of PZG, uh, both on the Toronto Exchange as well as uh, the over-the-counter bulletin board, I believe. Or no, it trades on the, on the Amex. The, the, now oh, the, oh, on the Amex. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. Okay, on yep. the Amex even, yes. 102 million shares, uh, but you, about $1.60 or so oh, I saw yeah, the last it's, I looked it's at. Yeah, it's between about, $1. sixty and a, you know, last month $1.90, so... Yeah, uh-huh. you know, it's about 175 million market cap. Um, we're in a number of indexes, um, and we're going to be. There's a couple more that we're adding. Um, you know, it does good volume. I mean, for yeah. a little stock, you know, we get 500 shares, thousand shares a day. We get sometimes a million. I mean, it, it trades between 500 million shares a day in New York. It's it's a well traded stock, and it's nice and liquid, and um, it's well followed. We, we're we're looking at picking up some institutional uh, analyst coverage. There's some, you know, independent analyst coverage from some of the uh-huh. banks your banks are looking at it right now, which is always good, too. Well, you know, I think one of the exciting things is that the fact that you've got some $22 million on your balance sheet, which means that you're not going to have to go back and raise capital anytime soon. I think you said you're spending about a half a million a month in drilling. Is that it? That's right. Exploration? Got, you know, we've, yeah, well, our budget is $6 million a year. So, so we're looking at, you know, we've got three, you know, three-plus years of exploration spent the Treasury, so we don't we don't need to do anything right now from the capital markets point of view, which is very very comforting for myself and for you know the shareholders, right? Absolutely, because we've seen it happen so often that companies have to go out and raise capital and they dilute the the heck out of their shareholders' interest, and so that is very exciting. It should mean then, how much drilling do you have um, going on now in your current program, and and will we start to see some results sometime soon? Yeah, I mean we're we're looking at around. 20,000 meters in this program that's going to wrap up this year. And, um, you know, we've got some results that, uh, that have come back, and uh, they're in that sort of um, that bulk tonnage-type target. So those are due to be put out. And, um, you know, one of the things we're seeing, and, it, it, you know, we're, we're going, we seem to be going back to 07, where things in the industry seem to be slowing down a little bit from a, a little bit overheated, you know, yeah. a lot of activity. And that's okay. That's maybe a good thing. Um, but yeah, certainly you will see some. I would uh, say in the next, uh, in the next ten days to fourteen days, you'll see some assays come out. Very interesting. Well, we're going to be watching for those and your website, so people can can go and keep up to date with what you're doing. What is it? Uh, it's, it's ParamountGold.com. ParamountGold.com. Uh, anything else, Chris? Oh, I should ask you. What do you think the biggest risk is for your company right now? 
Well, you know, I, I think I think the, there, there's a couple things. I mean, capital costs. You know, mm-hmm. capital costs have not have not dropped. You know, like we all thought they might. Yeah. And 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 that's just a function of perhaps demand. I don't I don't know. I mean, we we'd all hope, but you know, certain inputs have oil, labor. Sure. But, uh, but you know, that's 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 one risk. And I guess the other risk which we can't control is 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 the price of the commodity and. You know, we we all think it's going in one direction, and we hope it does, but uh, hopefully it doesn't doesn't go the other way. Yeah, you never can say for sure, can you, about markets? And I'm as bullish as I've ever been on gold. You heard the remarks from Ian Gore, Ian Gordon, our previous guest, talking about how bullish he is on gold, and that, you know I think that's where it's going. But again, I would remind our listeners that nobody knows for sure. There's always risks involved with these stocks. Uh, consult your own, uh, you know, talk to your own financial consultant. Sometimes it's a good idea. Talk it over with other people. Uh, but uh, remember, there are always, there's no such thing as risk-free uh, investments. And so we always want to remind our subscribers, our listeners of that. And thank you again, Chris, for coming on with us. We'll have to have you on again sometime soon. It really is a remarkable story. I thank you for sharing that with us. And folks, don't go away. We're going to come back with Roger Wiegand for the wrap-up on today's show as soon as we come back from the commercial break. Don't go away. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. American Bonanza Gold's project, located in Arizona, is scheduled for production in 2010. American Bonanza Gold announced the positive results of its recent feasibility study at its 100% owned Copperstone Gold Mine. The mine is estimated to produce an average of 45,000 ounces of gold annually. At the current spot gold price, this will result in an IRR of 120%. Join the gold bull market. Invest in American Bonanza Gold. Visit the website at AmericanBonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer-long by 20-kilometer-wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open-pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Apollo Gold is a gold-producing and exploration company that recently brought the brand-new Black Fox Mine into production. Apollo's 100% owned Black Fox Mine is located in the world-renowned gold-producing district of Timmins, Ontario, Canada. It's expected to produce over 100,000 ounces of gold annually. Apollo Gold also has tremendous potential for additional gold discovery as they continue their current exploration program on their recent new discovery at the Gray Fox property, which is adjacent to the Black Fox Mine, as well as its new land acquisition of Pike River. With gold prices near an all-time high, investors should consider Apollo Gold as an outstanding opportunity to invest in an undervalued junior gold mining company, well positioned to take advantage of a bull gold market. Apollo Gold trades on the New York Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol AGT and on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol APG. Visit Apollo's website at www.apollogold.com. Apollo Gold, a 
golden opportunity for investment. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm glad to have with me today for a change. He's not been with me for several weeks, but it's good to have Roger Wiegand back. He's my partner. He is the author of an excellent newsletter for commodities and futures trading called Trader Tracks. Welcome, Roger. Nice to be here. Good to have you back. It's been, I guess, we've just had such a hectic schedule. You've been traveling. I've been traveling. We've had uh, sh- our show filled with so many guests. It's been hard to, to talk to old friends and, and partners, but I'm glad to have you back. Now, you and I were talking a little bit about the equity markets at the break. Um, we see that the, um, that the market, the Dow, went down 112 points or so today. Uh, do you think we've seen the highs on this rebound? We've, we, you know, we saw the lows uh, in March of 2009, we've had quite a quite a retracement. Um, do you do you think we've seen the highs, or do you think we're on to a new bull market, or what? What are you? I your think thoughts? we're we're still in a in a small bull market. I don't think there's much upside left, but I do believe that now that the holiday is over and some other events are behind us, that we could see some uh, uh, stock rallies. Uh, nothing of any great magnitude, both in the S&P and the Dow, maybe a little bit in the NASDAQ. Uh, Hewlett-Packard just laid off six or 9,000 people, something like that. That wasn't good in a reorganization on part of their business. But the main news today on this uh, Tuesday after the holiday is the uh, tensions in the Gaza Strip between Israel and the Palestinians um, having that event on that ship. Uh, as the story goes, they were trying to find rockets that would have been used against them on that boat, but uh, we don't really know for sure what's happened. But after a four-day layoff, basically Friday through Monday, uh, we think the stocks could recover a little bit this week. They could come back up. And uh, uh, while there is some other over, uh, overreaching bad news uh, from Europe, uh, from the China real estate bonds, which are apparently are starting to go negative now, uh, we still believe that there's some punch left in these stocks, uh, specifically our precious metal stocks. Uh, we think that uh, they're going to hang on and go a little bit higher. However, we think generally all stocks are going to sell here pretty soon. Okay, Roger, I'm sorry. We're going to have to cut you off. I didn't realize how little time we had left with you. We're going to make sure. I think we'll bring you back next week with Chen, so we give you a chance to talk a little more. We're just out of time. I've got to tell folks that next week we're going to have... 
With us, uh, Roger Conrad is going to talk about income-producing investments. You're not going to want to miss that. If we're going where Ian Gordon thinks we're going, we're going to have to have income production. We're going to have to have investments that can pay the rent because we're not going to have jobs, many of us. So uh, Roger Conrad will be with us next week. Um, and I just want to thank uh, my senior executive producer, Tacey Trump, Ruben Colombe, my operations manager, Justin Jackman, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. Thanks to each of you for listening. And again, until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real. It's just your point of view.